Arnold Palmer, one of the most beloved golfers to ever play. On this week's In-Depth Podcast, we look back on the life of the late Hall of Famer who died in September 2016. We'll relive the journey that made Palmer a legendary competitor on the course. How would you describe the emotion of winning your first Masters? It was uh, probably the biggest thrill of my life. And one of the most popular athletes of all time. I can't tell you how proud I am of the, the medals that I won from from the presidents of the United States. Plus, memories from the other two members of golf's big three, Gary Player and Jack Nicholas. He was a people's man. It was wonderful to grow up and be alongside of him. Arnold was way ahead in the tournament, and he walked over and put his arm around my shoulder, which he didn't have to do. We sat down with Palmer in August 2015 in his hometown of Latrobe, Pennsylvania, at the same course where his father worked and lived, and taught a young Arnold to love the game. He was a tough, hard-working golf pro. But we begin with Palmer talking about an unlikely friendship. So I actually um, wanted to start off by talking politics with you in terms of presidents you've uh, spent time with over the years. Tell, if you don't mind, about the first letter you received from Dwight Eisenhower, then president. Well, uh... He invited me to play golf with him at Augusta. And of course, that was quite a thrill. And, and I accepted very readily. What was that like? Well, it was great. Uh, of course, uh, I had been around presidents before, but not quite like uh, Ike and uh, with all the Secret Service men and everybody there. It was, it was quite a thrill. And, and he is so uh, great a man that he made you feel pretty proud just to be with him and talk to him, and that was fun. You wrote in your autobiography that your relationship with him, quote, eclipsed any relationship I'd ever had with an older man besides my father. How so? Well, he was just a great guy to know and to talk to and he made you feel uh, great. He made me feel very proud that I knew him and that I was able to talk to him uh, the way I did. And of course, the only guy that I really ever talked quite like I talked to the president was my father. What sorts of discussions would the two of you had? Oh, it, it ranged from everything to, you, you name it, from golf to personal relationships uh, to how I felt about the world, uh, uh, if you're referring to Ike, and uh, mostly uh, golf business. And he wanted to know as much as you'd tell him about the, the golf game, and I did. I told him things that I really probably never told anybody else. What did he want to know? Oh, he wanted to know everything I thought when I was playing, uh, how I approached the game, uh, how I approached people uh, that were associated with the game, and uh, things that uh, most people wouldn't even think about asking. What do you recall from your 37th birthday surprise? Well, that was very special. Uh, I 
was going to Laurel Valley uh, that day uh, to play a, uh, a round of golf with some of the members. And uh, I was on my way out the door and uh, my wife was sort of holding me up and I couldn't figure out why she was holding me up. And I, I said, uh, Winnie, I, I've got to go. I got a good golf game this afternoon. And, well, she says, don't rush, just, just wait a minute. And she was delaying me for a purpose. And the purpose was that she knew what I didn't know, and that was that President Eisenhower was flying in on my airplane to greet me for my birthday and spend the day with me at Laurel and uh, around the house and, and just doing things that men do. And uh, finally, I just said, I got to go. And about that time, there was a knock on the door. And I said, I'll get it on the way out. And when I got to the door, it was a screen door. And uh, there standing in a, in a leather flight jacket was the president. Uh, and he, was <laughs> he looked great. And he, his first remark was, you suppose you could put an old man up for the weekend? <laughs> <laughs> and, and of course, that thrilled me to death. And, and I said, naturally, come on in. And he came in, and then we started talking about what we were going to do. That Congressional Medal Ceremony Day, when you were being honored, how much did it mean to you? I can't tell you how proud I am to be an American, and how proud I am of the, the, the medals that I won from from the presidents of the United States, and the, the Congressional Medal, the uh, things that, that are things that, that you just you, you shove away and just say, I'm thankful for the fact that I was fortunate enough to win them. What about it touches you? Well, the fact that, that uh, Congress and the United States and the people have endorsed uh, uh, an athlete uh, to receive these medals uh, is something uh, beyond belief. And I am extremely proud to have been there, done that as President Eisenhower, you know, knowing him, being with him, having him call me his friend. How can you say how much it means? What do you remember from speaking to Congress uh, on what would have been his 100th birthday? Well, that was, I was pretty nervous about it, and, uh, and I was thrilled also. And, and what I did was just talk about Ike and uh, my association with him and, and the things that I remember that he said and did that were so just absolutely fantastic uh, uh, things about his life and uh, not too much personal stuff, but more uh, what he was doing, how he uh, conducted his life and, uh, and everything that he said was, I just hung on like a, uh, I couldn't hear enough. And, uh, and I felt great about it too. Uh, 
And so I talked about all the things that we talked about, whether it was eating food or playing golf or uh, the clubs we used to play golf and, and so on for a long time. President Richard Nixon once invited you and Bob Hope to his San Clemente home where he had his team of senior advisors gathered, uh, advisor Henry Kissinger, Vice President Gerald Ford, other national security folks. What was discussed there? Well, it was, uh, it was sort of a summit meeting, you might call it, uh, with those people. And, uh, and it was concerning uh, the war that was going on and, and how to conclude it as quickly as possible with the least loss that we could suffer. And, and, and that was what we discussed. Uh, my recommendation was uh, uh, some of the low altitude uh, bombings and things like that. And, and we talked about everything in the war, how to save lives, how to uh, get the war over with and, and come home. How surprised at the time were you to be invited to participate in that? Well, I was too, but uh, they knew that I was a pilot and I enjoyed fighter airplanes and fighter aircraft, and, and, and I did fly a lot. So that was part of the reason, I, I assume. You worked with uh, the late Mark McCormick for many years, the legendary agent who kind of, in a sense, pioneered the industry and, you know, first obviously the two of you working together and then his creation of the global sports and entertainment management firm, IMG. What do you think made the relationship the two of you had so successful? Well, I can only uh, guess on part of that, but one thing, uh, when, when we made our deal, uh, I just said to Mark wanted to do a contract. And I said, you don't need to do a contract. We'll just shake hands on what we agree on, and if there's ever a difference, we'll talk it out. And, and, and he agreed to that, so we shook hands on the, on the deal, and it lasted until he passed. D during a time when athletes just did not have agents, that was something completely new. What made you decide to take him on as your agent? Well, I knew him when he was at William & Mary, went to school there, and he played on the golf team, and I played on the Wake Forest golf team. and uh, We've become friends from a distance, uh, and uh, we talked occasionally, and that uh, started the relationship. And, and then, of course, the fact that, that, he, uh, that we were both out of school now and into our lives uh, of business, and, uh, and we're now going to be doing something uh, that is meaningful to both of us. So uh, it worked very well. He, he stuck with the deal that we made and uh, when he started to branch out or what he thought was branching out, he had to come and see me to make sure that I would approve of what he was doing. And uh, in, the, 
in the instance of Jack Nicholas, uh, I agreed it was okay if he represented Jack and Gary Player, and uh, and I, if, as I recall, I think Doug Sanders was one of the guys uh, that he uh, was helping a little bit, and so on. Tell about the conversation the two of you had at the Plaza Hotel Bar. Oh, he was talking about my going, uh, uh, leaving Wilson, or going further with them. And he was asking me for permission uh, to go talk to uh, Mr. Bowman, who was president of Wilson. And finally, I agreed to that. And uh, he went and made an appointment. And, and uh, in short, uh, he made a deal with uh, Wilson Sporting Goods for me. And it was a pretty much a lifetime deal. And, uh, and he called me one day and he said, uh, Arne, he says, I got a, a deal with Wilson for you. He says, you and I need to go see uh, Judge Cooney who was uh, the chairman of the board uh, for final approval of this uh, deal. And so we went to Chicago and met with Judge Cooney. And uh, of course, the way I tell it to some of my friends was I learned what a lecture really sounds like. <laughs> and uh, what, did, what did he say? Well, he just told me that he had all the best golfers in the world, and he didn't need me. He had <laughs> Sam Snead, and Gene Sarazen, and Patty Berg, and all those good golfers. And, and for the deal that we had worked out, uh, it was a little beyond. He didn't think that, that they needed my expertise in their staff. What are you thinking to yourself as he's saying all this to you? I thought, yay, hi. I felt very, uh, I was mad at Mark, for one, for thinking that he had made a deal uh, with Wilson for me for life. And, uh, and, and of course, when this all came up, and it did, and it was hashed around, and, that we ended up walking out with nothing. How was it, though, almost a blessing in disguise? Well, of course, I've often wondered uh, that question myself. You have? I, I often wondered what it would have been like had I stayed with, uh, with that deal if, if it had worked. But it, they turned it down. They didn't want it. And, uh, everything I had won up until then was with Wilson equipment. I won the golf balls, the clubs, bags, everything. And I now had nothing. I had to start over. Uh, I was angry. And uh, I say angry because they had made Mark think he had a deal. Mm -hmm. He didn't, and I didn't, and we were starting over. But that ended it right there. It ended everything. And, uh, and of course, immediately upon leaving, we started negotiating 
to make new deals. Well, and it freed you up to be able to do so many other deals, which right. ultimately Absolutely. led to all the sponsorship success you've since been able to have. I'm not unhappy at all, uh, having done all these years uh, without the, the association. And you now have hundreds of Arnold Palmer, you know, stores uh, internationally selling your clothing and apparel. How do you go about deciding what business ventures to get involved in? Generally, it was things that I used some one way or another, and that was the decision that I usually made. If I didn't use it or if I didn't like it, uh, I didn't make a deal. And really, it's just living up to yourself, making yourself uh, honest and feel like you were doing the right thing. I want to talk to you about some notable moments from your career. The latter two moments I'm going to mention being a couple of the biggest highlights. The first one perhaps being one of the lower points, and that being the 1966 U.S. Open. Um, you lose a six-shot lead, uh, six holes to go. Um, explain what you're thinking uh, walking up the 18th fairway. I missed a couple putts, made some mistakes, but under normal conditions, uh, you know, who's going to shoot the kind of golf that Bill Casper shot in that last nine holes? That was exceptional, good golf, and some great putting and uh, great playing to tie me. And uh, I missed a little putt at 17, I remember about a three or four footer and uh, right straight uphill and I, I was mad at myself for that because at the time I thought, well, that might be the open right there, but it didn't uh, happen to be. We tied and, and of course then I lost in the playoff again, but uh, it was hard on me for a while. It was, uh, it was one of the biggest defeats of my life, and, uh, and it was the National Open. It was something that uh, was very, very important. And to say that I had lost the Open, I did. And uh, I played poorly in the nine holes after having played very well uh, during the tournament. And there was nothing I could do about it, and I said, well, as my father always said, just grin and get on and get to the next tournament. What was the toughest part of handling kind of the aftermath of the loss? Well, most uh, of the people that uh, were my friends, they didn't, didn't change them. They were still my friends, and I was thankful for that. And it encouraged me to go on and play some more golf and and play better golf, which I did. And I won after that. So it wasn't the end of the world. It felt like it for a while, but it wasn't the end of the world. And as I went on and on and won some more tournaments and, and had a pretty good career, I was thankful. Uh, the National Amateur Championship, uh, when you won that, what did your dad say to you? 
afterwards. Nice going, boy. That's all he said. But that, in a way, wasn't that the first time he complimented you? My father was very tough. He was never one for throwing out rewards or uh, congratulations. And, and when he said, nice going, boy, I knew what it meant. And I felt it, and I was grateful. Uh, your longtime uh, assistant, uh, Doc Giffen, uh, w was qu quoted as saying, um, without winning that, you may not have had the confidence to turn pro. Um, how, to, to what extent would you agree? Well, uh, I called it the turning point. And uh, it was the turning point in the way it, it gave me uh, the confidence that I needed to go ahead, turn pro, and get on the tour and play. And, of course, with the contract that I had with Wilson, which goes back a few years, uh, it was pretty restricted because uh, I wasn't getting a lot of money. I was getting enough to survive. And people may forget the money you could make uh, playing on the PGA Tour back then when you were first starting out, it's unlike anything the players are making today. I mean, you're driving from uh, tournament to tournament with a, a, a trailer on your car, staying in motels, just literally trying to make uh, ends meet. And I managed, and then I ran into a man by the name of Spencer Olin, chairman of uh, Olin Matheson Chemical Company out of St. Louis, and I played with him in the uh, uh, Greenbrier tournament, and it was a pro-am, and, and we did pretty well. And he shared uh, his winnings with me, which was strictly amateur, and uh, and I was I made some money, and I felt like I was now ready to go. The Masters. What do you recall from driving up? Magnolia Lane into Augusta National for the first time? Well, it was, uh, of course, the greatest thrill of my life, uh, going to Augusta to play in the Masters. And, and of course, I remember Magnolia Lane very well uh, with the trees and, and all the things that happened. And, and then getting on the golf course and seeing the golf course. and. Uh, uh, I remember Ed Dudley was the pro at the time at uh, Augusta, and it was a thrill seeing him. And uh, just being at Augusta uh, made me feel like I'd made some accomplishment. Bobby Jones, Ben Hogan, Sam Snead, Byron Nelson, as a young guy, when you get there, not only see them, but see them all chatting with each other. What's that like? It's a thrill. Uh, you know, I was raised the son of a golf pro, as you know, and, and we used to talk about these people that you just mentioned. And, uh, and I read Byron Nelson's book, and I read uh, some of Sarzen, and I read Jones, and and I remember things that happened to them in their uh, golfing prowess, and 
uh, and I was thrilled. And then to know them, see them, play with them, uh, eat with them was the greatest thrill of my life. Why did it bother you that Ben Hogan never called you by your real name? Well, that's funny because it, it did bother me. Uh, and I wasn't ever quite sure why he didn't, but uh, till the day he passed, I never remember him calling my name out and pronouncing my name, Arnold or Palmer. Or, I was hey you or something like that all the time. And, and I objected to it, but there was nothing I could do about it. What was your reaction when you overheard him at the Masters questioning how the heck you got there? Well, uh, geez, I didn't know you knew that, but that uh, he was with my friend, uh, Jackie Burke. And he said uh, his exact remarks were, how in the hell did he get in the Masters? And, and of course, when I won the uh, Masters, uh, I, I personally had a little personal satisfaction uh, from that. But as it turned out, uh, Hogan and I became friends. We weren't, I never held a bitterness or anything against him. Uh, uh, I thought he was a great talent, a great player. He proved he was a great player. Uh, and, and I accepted that and accepted him. He, he did his thing, I did mine. How would you describe the emotion of winning your first Masters? Well, you, know, you, you can't put it into words. It was a, it was a thrill. I was uh, so pleased to just be there and be playing at Augusta. And then when I won and, and uh, had the good fortune to win the second time, it was uh, probably the biggest thrill of my life. Palmer won the Masters four times during his career, third most behind Jack Nicholas and Tiger Woods. For more than a decade, Palmer and Nicholas were two of the most dominant players on tour, constantly neck and neck in major wins. Though the competition was heated, the pair remained friends off the course, as Nicholas explained when we chatted in 2016. How would you describe the level of competition that existed between the two of you? First time I played with Arnold was 1958. We had a driving contest on the, on the uh, uh, first hole, and I outdrove, I'd hit it, over the, hit it over the first green and won the driving contest. But Arnold shot 60, 63 that day or something, I shot 67 or something. And Arnold was, when I won the driving contest, I'm quick to point that out. He was quick to point out that he shot 63 and beat me. So our competition started right there. And uh, the next time, the next time we played together was 1962 at Phoenix. And Arnold, we got, we played together in the last round. Arnold was way ahead in the tournament. And we got to, after we walked off the 17th green, and he walked over and put his arm around my shoulder, which he didn't have to do. It was very nice. And he said, uh, you know, you can finish second here. And he says, you know, he says, just take your time. It's a par five. Just take your time, relax. You'll make birdie here and you can do it which was a really nice gesture. I mean, he won by 12 shots, 
But I made birdie at the last hole, and I finished second. I mean, I, I won 2,300 bucks that week, you know, for second place. That's a big, big, big win. <laughs> and so anyway, uh, we went on and played. I didn't play with Arnold again until we played the U.S. Open at Oakmont. And we played together, I think, uh, I think we played the first two rounds together, and then we played, uh, obviously, the playoff. And so um, Arnold knew, and he was, he was obviously a little embarrassed by his gallery a little bit, because he, you know, there was, he, he said that many times, he said they were a little bit over the top for what went on. And, uh, but I didn't hear it, I didn't. I was a 22-year-old kid with blinders on wanting to win a golf tournament. And so I never heard any of it. And of course, I've always said many times, I says, uh, I says, I've always had to fight Arnold's gallery, his army, but I never had to fight Arnold. But that's what, that's what made us such great friends, because what we do, we could go out and try to beat each other's brains out on the golf course, shake hands at the end of the round, and says, let's go to dinner. So we get the wives, we go to dinner. We were friends from the beginning, from the day he turned pro. And that friendship has lasted through all these years, and I'm very pleased and, and proud to say that I'm a friend of Jack's, and, and he's a friend of mine, and, and that we've gotten along as well as we have. It doesn't make us uncompetitive. We are, we, when we play against each other, we play as hard as we can play, and we have all our lives. How do you think you guys most differ? Differ? Uh-huh. Well, I'm not sure I can even explain that. Uh, we, we're similar in a lot of ways, uh, but we are competitive in every way. That we, our lives are, are competitive, and uh, the fact that, that he was my opponent uh, didn't make any difference as far as our relationship was concerned. I wanted to beat him as bad as I could beat him every time I ever played him and vice versa, and, and he'll tell you that. But it didn't affect the fact that we went out and uh, went in a bar room and had a beer, or uh, uh, occasionally I said, Jack, you got the ball too far forward in your stance, move it back a little bit, and you'll hit that driver better. And he did, and he, it, it was, that was the problem. It wasn't, so we helped each other, uh, and, and that was part of our friendship. Your son's uh, tournament qualifying school weekend mm -hmm. ends up, uh, unfortunately, being when the Arnold's wife, Winnie, passed away, so you and Barbara missed the last day of the, the tournament to fly to go to the funeral. I, yeah, we were, we were at, at the, uh, after, after, after the, uh, the ceremony, we, we went back to, wherever we had a reception. And uh, I sort of tried to see if I could sneak off to see, because it was being, the qualifying school was on television. And so, and, if I, and I, I didn't want to turn the television on. I didn't think, Arnold came by and he says, come on, turn this TV on. He says, we'll see how Gary's doing. So, you know, that was, that was pretty neat. You know, you, it's like my grandson is on the tour now. And, and he misses from time to time. And I see Jack rooting for him. Uh, and it's the same as my rooting for uh, Gary or Jack or any of the Nicholases. Uh, it's something you wish them well. You want to see them succeed. And you, you want to be proud of that. And, and I think that 
rooting for them uh, means a lot more than anything you can do. To this day, Nicholas, Palmer, and South African Gary Player are known as golf's big three. Winners of a combined 34 major championships, they not only boosted the sport's global popularity, but also formed a lifelong bond. It's something Player reflected on during our 2014 chat. Otto Palmer uh, is a man that has been, um, he's been a role model to a lot of pros as far as Patience is concerned with people. I've seen pros sign autographs, throw the hat over their head, throw the piece of paper away, scribble their name. Arnold Palmer stood there and signed everyone. He was a people's man. It was wonderful to grow up and be alongside of him and along Jack Nicholas to see two different personalities. And uh, it was wonderful growing up with two people that were marvelous ambassadors, not only for golf, but marvelous ambassadors for this phenomenal country. It was a terrific experience, a great education. What do you think's responsible for your success? My father. Because of everything he taught you? Absolutely. How would you describe what he was like? Well, he was, he was a, he was a tough, hard-working golf pro. He was a superintendent, and he had men working for him that were hard workers, and he was a golf pro. And he learned both ends of the business the hard way, by experience and by personal uh, work and, and, and fun, and, uh, and he was tough. He never... He never let up. He stayed tough uh, all his life. And by a matter of fact, I think about it, uh, he died a tough guy. He played 27 holes of golf the day he passed. And he was tough. What do you think you most learned from him? Oh, he was honest. And uh, he was probably as honest uh, as I've ever seen anyone. He, he said it the way it was. He did it the way it was. Uh, he, he helped everybody he could. Uh, he contributed. Uh, probably the toughest guy that he dealt with was his son. Why did your father say you were... Uh, his worst hire ever to run the golf pro oh, shop. Well, he picked on me. Uh, as I said, his son, uh, he was tough on me. He, he never backed off. Uh, he, uh, he played tough, worked hard, and died hard. Between growing up in the Depression, having, you know, not a lot of money when you were younger and even those early tour days when you know funds were scarce what did that teach you about savings well of course in my family my father and our, and our family uh, had no money most of our early lives we, we would come out and hunt rabbits and pheasants and uh, and take them home and my mother would soak them in salt water overnight and and we'd eat them the next day. 
and that was great stuff. Uh, but that was part of all of the education. Uh, and, and my father, when he bought uh, groceries, if he didn't have enough money to pay for it, I, I remember him scraping up enough money to go pay the bill, and, and he did. And he, he, he sacrificed the things that he liked to pay the bills for groceries that we ate. And, and that was his life. That was the way he lived in the early days. And, and of course, he told me how he appreciated uh, the fact that he was lucky enough to be a golf pro and to uh, be able to make a living doing what he was doing. Thank you very much. Very good. Thank you. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Arnold Palmer. To see video clips of our time together, plus a tour of Palmer's incredible collection of memorabilia, and my failed attempt to get the legend to reveal the secret formula to his iconic drink, go to youtube.com slash Bensinger. Also, please take a moment to review and subscribe. Thanks again for listening.